Welcome to episode 43 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us once again is our most prolific co-host, John M. Wilson. Welcome back, John. Hey, hey. Although I am your prolific co-host no more tonight because I'm setting aside my uh, podcasting microphone and leave it in the trash in the alleyway as I walk away sadly with my head down. Yeah. Aren't you worried about the glare that that'll produce for the people walking by? Or are you going to wait till after sunset? After sunset, you know, when it's all drizzly and rainy. Okay. But don't worry, because by, by the end of this episode, I'll pick it back up again. Okay. Yeah. So in case anyone hadn't picked up on the hints from that little introduction, we are talking about Amazing Spider-Man Volume 1, Issue 50, Spider-Man No More. Written by Stan Lee, penciled by John Romita Sr., inked by Mike Esposito under the pseudonym Mickey Demio, lettered by Sam Rosen, edited by Stan Lee, with a cover date of July 1967 and a release date of April 11th, 1967. This is the one with the extremely iconic cover of Peter Parker walking toward the camera with his head down all sad as Spider-Man, huge and red in the background, is, is, is walking away, looking back at us over his shoulder. So Peter and Spidey are, are parting ways. It's, it's an epic, epic, iconic cover. Love it, love it, love it. Yeah, even if you haven't seen this cover, if you love comics enough that you're listening to this podcast... You will probably see homages to this cover. Yeah. It's just one of those. Especially if you collect the variant covers that Marvel does now. I think it's been spoofed with Deadpool with Yeah. You you can find this cover without great difficulty. But this is um this is an issue that is, is well known for Peter Parker giving up the webs. He he realizes that his personal life is is very important to him. We we can get into the details of why that is in a minute, but he gives up being Spider Man. And it is also in the important books list of, you know, not this 75 list, but just, you know, important issues of comics, because it is a first appearance of a very important comic book bad guy. Yes. Because the uh, even though he does not have the name Wilson Fisk at this time, this is Mr. Fisk's first appearance in comics as the kingpin of crime. For all you Daredevil aficionados who have not dabbled in the Silver Age, Kingpin was a Spider-Man villain for about 10 years before he ever met Daredevil. Yep, it was Frank Miller actually going to the Spider-Man offices saying, I've got a story that really needs a crime boss. I don't think the owl's going to work, but that's my fallback position. Can I use the kingpin instead? Are you using him? And the Spider-Man office was quite happy to hand him over, and he was trying to figure out how to turn him from the Spider-Man villain that we see here into the Daredevil villain we now know. They told Miller to light him. So there's one panel where Kingpin lights a cigarette, and he's right. That lighting just changes your perception of the Kingpin from that point forward. But that comes later. Sorry. It's hard to pass up a chance to talk about Daredevil. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Um, Kingpin's first appearance is actually rather subdued in this issue. If you were to go on the internets or go into the back issue bins and pay some bucks for this because you want Kingpin's first story, he's actually not that significant in this issue. But this is the first of three consecutive issues that feature the Kingpin, and so he gets more involved as the story goes along. And 52 is actually another significant Spider-Man issue because it's one of the first times that somebody gives their life while Spider-Man's in the line of duty. And um, Frederick Foswell is later reincarnated as Sam Foswell in the DC Superman universe, but that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, definitely. And that's, I mean, you talk about Kingpin not being in this much. He's in three scenes for a total of six panels, and in three of those, he's facing away from the reader. 
<laughs> yeah, we don't know he's Wilson Grant Fisk yet. We know very little. But let's talk about what we do know in the issue. We'll do a quick plot synopsis here. Kicks off with Spider-Man foiling a bank robbery, or actually a payroll robbery, and of the two people he he rescued, one of them says, Spider-Man, you've saved our payroll and perhaps our lives. How can we ever thank you? And before he can respond, the other one cuts in saying, Easy, Martha, stay back. How can we be sure he isn't as bad as the others? The Daily Bugle says he's a menace. Don't come any closer to us. Which frustrates Spidey. He goes off saying, It's all J. Jonah Jameson's fault. No one trusts me. Nobody else has these problems. They think Daredevil's the coolest. Captain America turns them on, but mentions Spider-Man and Freezeville. He gets home just in time to get a message from Harry Osborn that his Aunt May is on death's door yet again. I don't think she ever actually leaves the doormat. She just kind of backs up to the Yeah. Answer. It's sort of like, you know, whenever you want to go and ask somebody out, but you can't get the gumption to do it. You kind of go back and forth, up to them in a way, and up to them in a way. That's how she is with death. She wants to go see death, and then she backs away. Probably because Thanos is standing right there, and it's kind of scary. But, um, sorry, crossing my streams yeah. there a little bit. Which reminds me, I should do a Ghostbusters podcast someday, but anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, Aunt May, it's issue 50, and she's almost died already. She's almost died like 75 times. Yeah, something like that. Or it's, you know, she's moments away from death for three or four consecutive issues. Yeah, from there, after Peter visits and Mrs. Watson, or, well, she's Watson now. She's occasionally Watkins in the early issues. She's there, basically says there's nothing more you can do. Try not to stray too far from the phone. You know, Peter goes to school and he's distracted. Here's J. Jonah Jameson ranting and he decides, you know what? He should have been there for his aunt. He was late getting there. He may never speak to her again because she's, you know, unconscious when he got there. And he blames his life as Spider-Man for not being there for his aunt. Can we interrupt the pathos for a second to talk about the hair sweater that Peter's wearing in this scene? Yeah. Because this is, this is, A, it's a very late 60s choice in fashion. But B, I thought they pulled it off really well because it looks exactly like those things should look and uncomfortable at the same time because of all the hair sticking off of it. Yeah, this isn't just a lot of the fashions at this time would be a single uniform color, right? Your red shirt, your blue shirt, your green shirt, whatever. Peter, they typically put in a collared shirt, but it was usually a white collared shirt. This, the amount of time that would have gone into drawing this sweater. Inking it and everything. Wow. Yeah. There's not many artists who would have made that choice. I mean, I, it wouldn't surprise me at the area. We can probably name some inkers, but we'll choose not to, who would have looked at those pencils and said, nah, and just ink the <laughs> collar and the wrinkles. It made all those little lines go away. It's probably also worth mentioning that he, uh, when he's at class and all distracted, he's in Professor Warren's class. And this is that Professor Warren that got discussed earlier on this podcast. Um, from the Clone Saga episode. Yep, this is Miles Warren. Yes. Before, uh, before there are any hints of a hint of a suggestion of him being a nefarious evil psycho. Yep, or the brother to his high school teacher, Warren. Cause yes. People are suspecting that, you know, possibly Stanley himself has fond memories of a teacher named Warren because he's had a high school teacher and a university professor named Warren who are clearly drawn as two different people. Later retconned to be brothers. Right. So Jameson's ranting about Spider-Man finally pushed Peter over, not over the edge in anger, just over the edge of, you know what, maybe he's right. Yeah. It really felt more like, I've got enough to deal with on my own, forget this. And he leaves the suit in a garbage can in the alley in the rain. Now, just just to be clear, he's walking in the rain. He has uh, his hair sweater and his collared shirt on underneath that and his jacket. He's fully dressed, walking in the rain. Nothing in his hands. 
in the next panel, he's walking away from a trash can with a Spider-Man costume in it. So I, I'm just assuming that he walked into the rainy, muddy alleyway in New York, which, you know, the hygiene plenty, and stripped down nude to put the Spider-Man suit in the trash can, then put all of his clothes back on in order to walk away in the iconic scene that we had the full page flash of that's beautiful. Yeah, I don't see any other way to do it, because even the panel right before that, he's clearly starting to remove his jacket. Right. He's got his fingers collapsed inside the flaps of his jacket, and he's starting to pull them back. If it, if it were Clark Kent, he'd be in the middle of a shirt rip. Yeah. He's definitely pulling it back, and in the next panel, he has it on. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so he is very wet and very cold right now, which could be why it skips from there to the Daily Bugle. The next morning, when a little kid found the Spider-Man suit in the trash can and brought it to J. Jonah Jameson. And his reward is a free copy of the Bugle. Yep. And meanwhile, Jameson's reward is to plaster his inability to spell all over the front page of his newspaper. <laughs> Spider-Man would... True is spelled T-H-R-U. You would never get away with that on a real newspaper. That is hilarious. I was reading a comic today, and somebody used the word thought. T-H-O-T in a dialogue bubble. And I was like, Really? Is that where we are? I mean, I know you're saving space because you have to letter this whole thing, but still. <sighs> yeah. And from there, we go to Jameson making the, the press rounds. And once again, they're drawing actual people in here. Johnny Carson's in there. Yeah. I didn't realize how long Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon had been working together on The Tonight Show until they showed up in this comic. And I went back and went, really? Is it actually them? It's not just coincidence that it looks like them, but one of them Johnny? No, this would have been Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon, uh, followed by... Another panel show. I don't know if it's a specific one. And then our brief introduction to the Kingpin. And by brief, I mean he's looking out a window with his back to the reader. This is the moment we've been waiting for. With Spider-Man gone, my plans can now reach fruition. Tell the boys to start spreading the word. I want every mob in the city to know the Kingpin is ready to take over. Yeah, which begs the question, if J. Jonah Jameson had never gotten to Spider-Man and caused him to hang up the webs... Would the kingpin have ever risen to the prominence he's got? Was he just waiting for that particular opportunity? Are you suggesting that um, Elektra and Karen would never have been stabbed through the hearts with bullseye daggers if Spider-Man had never given up being Spider-Man? Yeah, I think J. Jonah Jameson, we know he created the Scorpion. We know he funded and at least redefined the Spider-Slayer. Maybe we add the kingpin to his list. Mm, this man has more blood on his hands. Yeah, although... It was Amazing Spider-Man 700 three weeks ago where, you know, it was his cat calling that convinced Dr. Octopus to go back to New York instead of flying off to Europe. So he saved the world in that issue, but he may have damned it in this one. We then get to see uh, Patch, who is a masked identity, you know, as in rubber mask, for Frederick Foswell. Now, Frederick Foswell is an interesting character because he dates back to Amazing Spider-Man number 10 which uh, had the big man and the enforcers and a pretty, pretty terrible cover that was done at the last minute because the initial Steve Ditko cover had a very prominent gun placed on the cover and they, they want, they didn't want that. So, but um, Frederick Fossil was just this little guy who would wear a, you know, platform shoes and a padded jacket and a metal mask. So you couldn't see his face. And he went by the name, the big man. And he was the crime boss in New York city. Of course, there are so many who are the crime boss of their story, but, you know, in Spider-Man's history, he was the first, the crime boss of New York City, and he had the enforcers, the Ox, Fancy Dan, and Montana working for him, and at the end of the issue, Spider-Man unmasks him, and Frederick Foswell goes to jail. When Foswell gets out of jail, 
he goes straight and gets a job working for the Daily Bugle and just becomes a background supporting character in the course of the first, you know, half century of Amazing Spider-Man issues. Occasionally, Peter wonders if Foswell's onto his secret identity, but nothing ever really comes from it until this story when Frederick Foswell again takes prominence because now that there's a kingpin, that's the role that Foswell had. And he's a little bit, um, a little bit envious of it now. But anyways, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I just wanted to kind of get some background on the character there. Yeah, he was. I actually remember being a little disappointed when I read that part of the issue for the first time, because I liked the idea of having a criminal who legitimately went straight. At the time, I hadn't been reading The Avengers, so no exposure to... The Swordsman. Well, yeah, Swordsman, Hawkeye, Black Widow, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver were all <laughs> known to me exclusively as heroes. Right. I didn't know at the time that they'd started as villains. And I can't remember how 51 and 52 play out if it turns out that he was scamming the whole time and just trying to get in to get a story and find out what's going on, or if he was legitimately trying to get in on, you know, get a cash grab. I don't remember now. Spoiler, well, no, we already talked about it, but he, but he does come to prominence here, and, and getting involved with the Kingpin is what ends up costing him his life in 52. Yeah. Yeah, but after that scene, we're back to the Kingpin for another two-panel conversation where he's proceeding with his master plan. They've got a little bit of a gleam on the gem in his cravat, which could be what that and the scepter he was holding could be what inspired the way he was interpreted for the 1966 animated series, because I never could figure out where that kingpin came from. There was so much about that animated series, though, that I don't really know where it came from. Yeah. Uh, following that, Peter has another run-in with MJ, or not MJ, sorry, Gwen Stacy. And yeah, they're, you know, he's starting to really feel like, okay, I can come home to that. Then he meets MJ. And he's, you know, he's starting to feel really good about his life. And he's thinking, what's the difference? And then, you know, there's a call about the West Side Welfare Office that's just been robbed. And he's about to spring into action. And remembers, oh, yeah. Wait a minute. That's not my job anymore. I'll read about it in the paper. And he, uh, this is a point in his history with Gwen Stacy where he likes her and he won't say it. And she likes him and she won't say it. Neither one of them is willing to to really say, you know, hey, you want to you wanna be a, a twosome. And so that's why Mary Jane's around, because cause she and he still flirt kind of casually ever since their first couple of dates about 20 issues earlier. And so it's it's a place in Peter Parker's life where now that he's given up Spider-Man, he can sort of see himself getting with a girl and having a thing going on. Yeah, he's quite happy, ready to settle into a normal life. But it's we do see the nagging of his past life when Harry's reading about the robbery the next day, and Peter thinks to himself, got to change the subject, keep my mind off crying. Well, it's like any habit you're trying to break. You're trying not to think about it as much as you possibly can. Yeah. Yeah, but it does, it, it clearly bothers him. And then he overhears somebody being assaulted on the rooftop and doesn't have a suit, but that's it. When there's a person in jeopardy right then and there, he can't stand by and watch. He can't walk away. You know, so right. He ditches the shoes and socks. He scales the side of the building and has to move quickly and through the dark to make sure he doesn't get recognized because he doesn't have his mask on. And when he's trying to figure out why he did it, he believes it's because the Watchmen reminds him of Uncle Ben, because they do look somewhat similar. Now, the way it's originally positioned, I don't know how he could notice that similarity, because there's a pretty substantial difference. I think he was moving before that familiarity would have been recognized. So I don't buy that as the reason. I think that's the excuse he gave himself, but it is a nice recap of the origin, because this is something of an anniversary issue, and the number of people who've actually read Amazing Fantasy, Amazing Fantasy 15 probably pale in comparison to the number of people who were reading Spider-Man Amazing Spider-Man by the time issue 50 came out. I don't think he saved him because he was Uncle Ben or looked like Uncle Ben. I think that once he saves him, he looked, the guy looks familiar. And so it's kind of p bugging Peter Parker's brain. 
and that's what starts making him thinking of the whole with great power comes great responsibility story of his origin. Yeah, and that's it. That's the part about this. We get a page and a half recap of Uncle Ben and the power and responsibility lesson before we're back to the kingpin. Oh, and I miscounted. He's in seven panels. <laughs> so, and Foswell meets him and he's saying, I'm not greedy. I'm willing to share this with you and share the lieutenants. And the kingpin does not like that. He's basically saying, yeah, no, I can take you. And that's when he starts shooting at Foswell through the scepter that he carries and insists that the kingpin doesn't make mistakes. Meanwhile, Peter Parker sneaks back into the Daily Bugle building early in the morning because, you know, it's a newspaper, so clearly there's times where it's closed and empty and there's no one there. Right. Slips into J. Jonah Jameson's office, takes the costume back from inside the case. I have no idea what happened to his street clothes that he was wearing, which, yeah, they just seem to disappear. And then not long afterwards, J. Jonah Jameson comes in and Spider-Man is sitting in his desk with his feet up saying, essentially, I'm back. So, I don't know, to me, it's got to be that Peter took his clothes out with him and then came back just to have that conversation with Jonah. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's really what makes sense. It says not long afterwards, but anything could happen during not long. It could have been that Peter went back home and slept and came back early the next morning. I mean, that's not long. It's not really very specific. Really, the Peter Parker Spider-Man plot is over. He does not know about the Kingpin. He does not know about Frederick Foswell. He does not know that all of the narrative threads that were that were dropped in this issue are going to be picked up next issue. He swings off to to go into action for for you know just general purposes. But this is the first of a three part story with the Kingpin and Foswell and everything else. And yeah, it's it's not the first time that Peter Parker gave up being Spider Man. I think it is one of the more impactful. One thing that was done in an earlier version of this story that's not done here is that you have an issue end with no Spider-Man. Peter gives up being Spider-Man and is not Spider-Man when the issue closes. And it's the next issue that has a cover of Peter Parker, uh, I'm sorry, of Spider-Man hiding behind some wreckage while Sandman's, you know, on the prowl with his big old sand stomper hands. I think it's called the end of Spider-Man or question mark, question mark on the cover. But anyway, so that's where he spends almost the entire issue not being Spider-Man and goes back into action in the very last panel. And 19, I think, is where he's, you know, back in back in action. So this is not the first time he's given it up. It's not the last time he's going to give it up. But for some reason, this one does stick out in memories most strongly. And I think it's because there are so many iconic images in this issue. There's the cover, there is the trash can with the costume hanging out of it. Yeah, the image that was essentially copied for Spider-Man 2 by Sam Raimi. Right, and it's it's a solid issue. I kind of do wish that we had, you know, gotten left with a cliffhanger of whether or not he was going to be Spider-Man again, but like I said, they've, they've played it that way before, so I don't really hold it against him. And he likes being Peter Parker, unlike the previous story, Amazing Spider-Man 17, 18, 19, where his, now that he's no longer Spider-Man, he's completely consumed by taking care of his sick aunt. Now, yeah, his aunt's not feeling well, but she's not terrible, and he can live a normal life as Peter. And so he gets to see what that might feel like. Yeah, is she really not terrible, though? Because I mean, when they get there, she's sick, she's unconscious, they're letting her rest, they'll contact him if there's any change, and then they never contact him, and he's out there partying anyway. <laughs> it seems like Aunt May's health condition only bothered him until he gave up being Spider-Man. And then it was all about the girls. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But, you know, you get used to having a dying aunt. You still have to live your life, right? Yeah. He does go and see her, and she's uh, sitting up. 
that was the one I was looking at when I said she's not terrible. Whenever he goes and sees her, Mary Jane's over there. She's sitting up. She looks, you know, she's not bouncing off the walls, but she's in good spirits. Yeah, well, as long as she's ready to whip up a batch of wheat cakes, she's normal. <laughs> and Mary Jane is doing her party animal bit. That is basically the, the def- definition of her character until after Gwen Stacy dies. Spoilers. Oh, yeah, for sorry. Podcast number one. Yeah, last episode there. Yeah, the one titled Death of Gwen Stacy, so. Right. It's sort of like Return of the King. You know what's going to happen. Yeah, it's all about how. And if you've seen Amazing Spider-Man 2, you could probably guess that. But anyway, yeah, so I think we've discussed the significance. This is str- neither the first nor last time that Peter Parker gives up this identity of Spider-Man. But of the ones I've read, I think it is the best time. I, I can't think of one that did the whole package better. And a lot of that is because of the way J. Jonah Jameson reacts when he gets the suit. And he's saying, yes, I did it. And he's declared a victory. And he's doing his like third or fourth victory lap when he comes in and there's Spider-Man in the suit in the office. I'm surprised J.J.J. didn't turn around and try to have them sue him for theft. Because what he found was found in the garbage can. So, fair game. Spider-Man broke into his office. Yeah, that's breaking and entering. Because, well, I'm sure he had that case locked or sealed somehow. Yeah, it, it probably is the best. There's there's a lot I could compare it with with the previous. And one of the things is that the previous story was Ditko art, and this is Romita art. And so there are just some the ways that they handle things that, that are different. But, you know, it doesn't get any better than these two. And this one probably probably takes the cake. Certainly it's all one package, like you said. It's all in one issue. He, he goes through the whole emotional crisis and then returns to the role all in one 20-page story. Not six issues, not, you know, a crossover event, just one issue. Yeah, not four different identities and four different Spider-Man titles. (laughs) I think it also helps reading it now. I mean, if we get into the personal stories, I read, I originally read comics in elementary and junior high. So we're talking late 80s, early 90s. The only comics not published in that time frame that I read were classic X-Men issues that reprinted the start of the Claremont run on Uncanny X-Men. So you didn't get the special added scenes and the backups? Um, I did in, in Classic X-Men, but the only thing I had that was kind of reprint was the Classic X-Men issues. Gotcha. Everything else I was reading was new. So my first exposure to any comics that were not published within my lifetime were Essential Spider-Man volumes that I picked up when the movie started coming out. Okay. The Sam Raimi movies. Yeah. So by the time I started picking up the Classic issues that way, there were enough Essentials out that I I think it was the first three volumes that I basically picked up, uh, picked up volume one on its own and then went back for two and three. You know, one the day I bought my tickets, and then I kept buying th- whatever else was available when I went back to see the movie, uh, one before the film, and then I read it waiting in line because this was before the days of assigned seating, and then the comic shop in the same mall was still open, so I bought another one on the way home. So I did, I'm pretty sure they might have been uh, Fantastic Four and Kenny X-Men, but it, I know I bought all of the essential Spider-Man volumes that were available before I started buying the other essentials. I was a bit later, I think. I grew up on the first 20 issues of Spider-Man. Uh, in the late 70s, Marvel did a thing where they published pocketbook size paperbacks. Now, your regular mass market paperback, standard, small, handheld paperback. Uh, they would publish comics in that format, which makes the print pretty small. But, you know, I, 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 I devoured them voraciously. They did it with several different series. I know they did Fantastic Four, I think... They did others, but I had the three Spider-Man volumes that, between the three of them, reprinted Amazing Spider-Man 1 through 20 and Amazing Fantasy 15, no annuals. Right. Yeah, those were, like, Archie size, weren't they? I would say even a little bit smaller than Archie, because Archie's a little bit bigger than, like, your standard Star Trek novel or whatever. That's that's how big these were. 
Okay. Yeah, because you're jogging my memory here. Actually, I had read some of the reprints. I read uh, the storyline when Aunt May and Dr. Octopus almost got married, and the origin okay. of the Scott Lang Ant-Man, which I was just talking about not too long ago in the recording of the Avengers Disassembled episode. And those were from different lines, so they may have been more Archie-sized, Archie-style paperbacks, yeah. So anything after issue 20, I did not pick up until much later. As an early 90s reader, I did not get much in the way of reprints. And it wasn't until after I ditched comics as a teenager and then got back into comics after 2008 when the Iron Man film hit, that summer when I started getting back into comics, that I started reading back issues. And it was through the Get Corp DVDs, I think, that I read a lot of early Spider-Mans and just... I, I, I wanted, since he was my number one guy, I grew up reading Spider-Man. He's not my number two guy. Superman's my number one. But Spider-Man was my number one for years, and I wanted to read every single Spider-Man story ever. So the Get Corp DVD was a good way to start that, and I read this issue at some point in the you know late 2000s, sometime from the summer of 2008 forward. I've now read it probably a half dozen times. It's It's a good issue, and... I get stalled on reading projects, and I feel like I have to restart the reading projects. So I've restarted my journey through Spider-Man a few times now. Yeah, that's I would say having read a lot of those, looking back at 1960s Marvel, I'd say Amazing Spider-Man and Fantastic Four were the two most consistently good titles they were putting out. They are definitely the most rereadable. Um, there, there's a lot of good stuff there. There's a lot of good drama, and you don't feel like you're just trudging through the villain of the issue. Yeah, and you get like other stories or other titles would have really strong issues and really strong stories. But I'd be hard-pressed to say whether it's Fantastic Four or Amazing Spider-Man that had the highest average quality. Right. Because their their low points were not as low as the low points of other comics. And I have always been curious to know, at what point during history did Spider-Man supplant Fantastic Four as their flagship title? I just I, I, I don't know if it was late 60s or early 70s when it was, but, you know, Fantastic Four is... <laughs> I got in trouble for saying this about the thing, um, but as far as its sales and its impact on the Marvel Universe right now, Fantastic Four is kind of B-list. And I love the Fantastic Four, and I think that they're great, and I wish they had greater prominence, but right now they, they just don't. But there was a time when they were the flagship title of the company, and at some point Spider-Man took that place. I'm just not really sure when it was, because no one had to publish sales figures back then, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't know either. I mean, as far as they go... I mean, Reed Richards is one of my favorite Marvel Comics characters, and Fantastic Four is where you find him. Fantastic Four and Daredevil are two out of maybe five comics on the market that I will never drop. Those are ones I'm going to be reading, you know, for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. But I would agree that, yeah, when you're looking at the current impact on the Marvel Universe and their sales figures, Fantastic Four is not an A-list title. If it was, it wouldn't be ending with Secret Wars. Right, they wouldn't be divvying up the characters into other concepts right now. Yeah, I mean, there were rumors that Marvel was going to be doing that as a way to stick it to Fox for not giving back creative control over the characters. But to me, that theory makes no sense, because if you look at the numbers that, that big-budget films and summer blockbusters need to hit in order to make a profit, the entire comic book reader market is not enough to come anywhere close to it. They're not going to cater to us. <laughs> Those kinds of deals are in the merchandising realm. They're in the the movie promotion realm. I can see Marvel and Disney not wanting to help promote Fox's endeavors when they don't get a lick of, of you know, return on it. But there are always going to be X-Men comics. There are always going to be Fantastic Four comics. And, and maybe they're going to go through a period right now where that title is off 
the books for a little while and they're going to bring it back in a different way. I don't know exactly what this all new, all different Marvel is going to look like. And of course we're kind of dating our episode now a little bit, but the characters are always going to be there. Yeah. Or at least if they die, they'll come back. Yeah. But you know, sadly in the ultimate universe, the fantastic four was the first of the three major titles to fall by the wayside. Yep. Every time I've seen it, you look at the comic book sales chart and I'm going, yeah, that's probably why. I mean, to me, you cannot o- overstate the impact that Fantastic Four had on Marvel in the 60s. Right. Without Fantastic Four number one, there is no Marvel Comics. And you've talked about before how the Lee Kirby Fantastic Four run surely deserved a place on here if we're going to do huge long runs like New Mutants and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that that's all been discussed. But yeah, if you're looking at you know issues to pull out and things that have the impact, yeah, Fantastic Four is not the sales juggernaut today that it once was. Spider-Man took that role, I would estimate somewhere in the late 60s, early 70s, but I don't know for sure. Although, I mean, like you, I'd be interested in finding the pointer if it's one pointer, if they flip-flop for a while. Right. But they were the juggernauts. And things wax and wane. I mean, we'll be talking about it a little bit more in our next podcast, but the relative sales on Avengers and X-Men have fluctuated as well Mm -hmm. a number of times over the years. But Amazing Spider-Man, it's not always the number one book Marvel's putting out. But it's been a long time since it was a low-selling book, if ever. Right. And, you know, in in recent years, Spider-Man's made some, you know, certainly controversial creative choices that have changed how people approach the book. But it is consistently a top 10 selling title. And and this this issue that we have right here is 1967. So it's somewhere around then that Spider-Man is gaining that prominence. And this issue was a big move, a big milestone during that era. So, yeah, it would have been around this time. I mean, this issue came out five months before the animated series premiered. Wow, it was around this time, wasn't it? Yeah, because it's a 1967 series. Yeah, September 9th, 1967 was the pilot episode. I just looked it up. And there was a Fantastic Four cartoon around that same time, too. Okay, well, yeah, so Spider-Man is getting prominence. He's the one who gets three seasons of cartoons with 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 a theme song that everyone still sings. Everyone in the world knows the spider-man theme song yeah paul francis webster on the lyrics yeah and the fantastic four cartoon premiered the same day september 9th 1967 yeah the marvel superheroes hit in 1966 with no specific air date because it was syndicated it's not that that's a bad series it's just so of its era but yeah so this is probably near his rise to prominence before he got the solo cartoon when marvel superheroes with five solo characters were being mixed through on the day-to-day basis He's the one that got the full time. He's the one that got three seasons. And he actually had a higher budget. So the animation in Spider-Man was actual legitimate animation created for the show, as opposed to the Marvel superheroes, which was taking comic book panels and flapping lips and cutting them up to slide them around like little paper dolls. Yeah, yeah. And, and with occasional more animation than that, but but not a lot. Yeah, the the Marvel Superheroes cartoon from 1966 has more in common with the early 2000 motion comics than it does with cartoons. Right. And when you sit down, when you when you know you're sitting down to watch a motion comic, you kind of expect a motion comic. When you're sitting down to watch a cartoon, you you sort of expect something different. Yeah. Yeah, especially in the 1960s. Although, well, I have found that by 1967-68, this is when the titles are sort of vying for top placement the sales figures for 1967 spider-man had lower average sales per issue than uh, fantastic four did 
but their end of year, the last issue that was filed before the statement of ownership is published. Because they do, they do average monthly sales and the last issue's sales. Spider-Man's last issue had higher numbers than Fantastic Four's last issue. So this is 1967. This is the year that Spider-Man takes over. And I bet you that cartoon has something to do with it. Because if you're sitting at home watching Spider-Man cartoons and you're watching Fantastic Four cartoons, those are, those, those are going to influence your purchasing choices. Yeah. One was better. And the Spider-Man cartoon, as cheap as it was, was a better cartoon than the other Marvel cartoons that were on air at the time. Yeah. So anyways. So next up is the portion of the podcast that I have shamelessly pulled and stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast that everyone should be listening to. This is the part where we look for the messages, morals, and meanings of this issue. Now, did you see any morals? Do you see any meanings? Any take-home lessons that you can learn from this? It's it's a common trope of a journey that the, the, the hero questions whether or not they should continue being the hero, and then they return to that at the end. But but it's it's important for the type of character that Spider-Man is. So there's a bit of a destiny for him that he he is destined to save people. It's in his blood. It's in his psychology. Ever since losing his uncle. He can't let other people suffer. So, you know, there's, there's a bit of a fate, not fatalism in a negative sense, but there's just a little bit of a, of a fate aspect to his being Spider-Man. Now, he gave up being Spider-Man because he wanted to have a social life and he wanted to be there for his aunt. And so it's going to become pretty apparent pretty quickly that those things are going to have to suffer again because he's Spider-Man. But hey, it's what he is. Yeah, I would say largely that is a big part of it, especially when he is saying, oh, I've given it up. As soon as he sees someone in trouble within reach, right, when when he heard the, the bank robbery on the radio, he went for the costume that's not under his shirt anymore. But when there was right. someone in the vicinity that was in danger, he had ditched the shoes, scaled the wall, and fought to save him before he stopped and said, oh, wait, I thought I quit this. Yeah. And it's easy to ignore something that's not immediate. Probably harder at the time of Peter than it is nowadays, because I think that shock and awe on the news was just not quite as prevalent as it is now. But yeah, hearing about something on the other side of town is one thing. Seeing it happening right in front of you is something totally different. I think we can all relate to that. It is. And that, to me, that says a lot about who Peter is and who we should be. Because the the way this plays out, if Peter had been stripped of his powers, I believe at at this point in in his evolution, he would not walk away. He would still go out there and try to help. And we do explicitly see that later. But he's already at that stage. So the Peter Parker in the comics in issue 50 is not the Peter Parker that we see on page one of Amazing Fantasy 15. He has definitely grown and changed by then. Yeah, there are some characters. I mean, if you look at the Barry Allen Flash on the other side of the street, he's already a criminal scientist. He's already trying to do the right thing to the best ability that his skill set allows. Right? He's doing what he can to fight crime. He just does that best in the lab. Then he gets his powers. If he wasn't already in the lab, he wouldn't have them. Daredevil and Hulk, I think, are the two Silver Age Marvel exceptions. You can add Captain America if you go back to the Golden Age. Those are the only characters who had that heroic streak in them before they got their powers. Daredevil and Bruce Banner, they explicitly got their powers because they were going to save a life. Right? They put themselves in the jeopardy that somebody else was in to save them. Right. Captain America was saying, the Nazis need to be stopped. How can I help? Yeah. Dr. Erskine said, this way. He said, okay, sign me up. Those those three are, I think, unique in that respect. And I would I would say that Peter Parker was even farther on the other side of the pendulum. I mean, before he got his powers, and you can still see it 
after he got his powers. I think it's part of the charm of early Spider-Man. Peter Parker is a bit of a jerk. He's a little bit on the self-absorbed side. He's a little bit on the narcissistic side. And, you know, he's been picked on a lot, so perhaps he has some reason for being woe is me. But he is not always the nicest person. If, like other heroes, he became a good person the second he got his powers, Uncle Ben would still be alive. Right. He's not one of the guys that says, now I have powers, I must do this, it's my moral obligation. He had to learn the lesson the hard way. And it's almost like a complete opposite of the superhero trope they had established up to that point, largely propagated over the recent years by DC, and so they get blamed for being early Marvel. There's a lot of rivalry between Marvel and DC because DC is doing things kind of the way they've always been done. And Marvel have been doing things the way they've always been done, too, just not in a while. Now Marvel's trying a few different things, and Peter Parker's one of the biggest departures from the standard fare. He gets powers. His immediate reaction is not to become a superhero. It's to cash in. He wants to go try his powers in the wrestling ring. He wants to get fame and fortune on the TV cameras, and it takes a brush with, you know, death that's largely his fault for him to realize, oh, crap, this is not the way I should be. Yeah, he didn't pull the trigger, but he could have prevented it from being pulled. Right. And that's that's the wake-up call. And that, that is one of the things that has that sets Spider-Man apart from superheroes in both com- comic book companies. I mean, DC has learned. You, you could say that they take flack, and that's true, but DC, prior to the Wortham Trials and Seduction of the Innocent, was a very different company. Right. I think a lot of DC Silver Age heroes had very pedestrian characters of very stock origins simply because they were the first to stick their necks out and try to get back into the superhero game. And in order to do that, they had to make sure that they were appealing and appropriate for the seven and eight year olds that people were trying to protect from the evils of comics at the time. Right. Right. Had Wortham never published, I don't think the Silver Age creations that DC came up with would have been quite so saccharine. They, they, they would have had rougher edges to them had it been a different market at the time they were published. It's hard to imagine a day and time when saying you worked in comics was like saying you worked in kitty porn. It was looked down on so sharply. Yeah. Yeah. It was not, it was not an industry that people were proud to be a part of by and large. That's, I mean, Mike Esposito inked this under a pseudonym. Pseudonyms have been very common up to this point, mostly to protect your real identity. So you could so still go work in other media, including Stan Lee. That's why he started going by Stan Lee instead of Stanley Lieber or Lieberman. I forget exactly which his birth name is. Mike Esposito used it because at the time they had exclusive contracts. He worked for Marvel or DC as they do right now. But at the time, it wasn't a special deal for creators to keep that big name draw creator with Marvel or DC that came with the implicit promise to keep you busy and keep you working for that period of exclusive or exclusivity. It was just know your company property. And you're signing yourself up for our company, your commodity that can't go elsewhere. And that didn't necessarily mean you got enough work to pay the bills. So it was not at all uncommon to have uh, pseudonyms so that you could publish on the other side of the street and quietly get more work. It's really weird to pull the co- cart to, uh, the curtain back on the comics industry because there, there's a lot of weird stuff that goes into the production of our funny superhero books. Yeah, just suffice it to say that the actual human beings producing some of these comics do not necessarily live up to the the moral standards that the characters they produce do. I, I think we can safely say that. Probably. Well, it's a business, and there's always weird people in business. Yeah. yeah so I think that's about all the messages and, and meanings we can come up with. So what we're left with is just final thoughts and why we, we think it landed at this point in the rankings. 
and I believe we've strongly alluded to that. This is just, it's a really good issue. It recaps the origin. So for a lot of readers at this time, it was bound to be their first exposure to his origin. And it reminds readers of why he does what he does. It sets up new storylines, introducing the Kingpin and preparing Foswell's exit. It showcases his supporting cast very nicely, which I think could be one of the reasons I enjoy this more than enjoy the story in issues 18 and 19. It's because this has the the supporting cast that I am more familiar with. And they're all in their classic modes. I mean, even though we don't go to the coffee bean in this issue, we're in that era of Spider-Man, the John Romita coffee bean era of Spider-Man. Harry's not strung out on drugs. He's not trying to be the Green Goblin. Um, Gwen Stacy is alive, and yet she and Mary Jane are kind of in a rivalry for Peter's affections. There's just a lot of classic Spider-Man in this issue supporting a really solid Spider-Man, Peter Parker-centric story. Yeah, if you want a feel for what the John Romita, Stan Lee era of Spider-Man was like, I can't think of a single issue that gives you a better representation of it. And it really, I mean, the 40s, talking issue counts of amazing, is when all that gets established because Romita took over with issue 39. So it's it's expected that this would be a good representation of that because it's right. He's been on it for a year. He should know what he's doing by now. But yeah, definitely recommended. Is it top 50 Marvel? It's certainly not a bad story. It, it ranks up there among Spider-Man stories. Spider-Man does Spider-Man does single issues really well. There are a lot of good single issues of Spider-Man out there. So yeah, I think that's that's why it's on the list. It's representative of a strong era of the character. It's it stands out and it leaves an impression because the visuals are so strong that they were flat out taken and slapped up on screen in the movies. This is just really good Spider-Man, even if he has no idea that there's a villain around the corner. Right. Which in many ways is also really good Spider-Man because. He tends to be more reactive than proactive. If he's out hunting a villain, it's because that villain has already kicked his butt once in recent memory and is still at large. And if you ever want to do a reading of early Spider-Man, you would not do, it would not be a bad choice to start at issue one and read at least as far as this issue. I would say even read the entire first 120 up to the death of Gwen Stacy. That's just, there are very few clunkers during that run. But, uh, but this is, this is, this is a great issue from a great era. And I'm sure listeners are finally happy to hear John M. Wilson talk about it. I did an Amazing Spider-Man podcast that went up to, how far did we get? Issue 47 or something like that? Uh, Yeah, sounds about right. And there was a personal reason for the show to stop. Um, There were were conflicts among the panelists and, you know, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. And so the last few recordings I never edited and published because I just didn't have the heart to do it at the time. And I still have them on a hard drive somewhere, so I may go back and do that at some point. But but yeah, Amazing Spider-Man 50, we did a great episode on it. <laughs> so I, I've been looking forward to this ish, this episode for that reason. Now that I'm here, a lot of things that I would say about this uh, this issue are following subplots, because that was such a huge part of Amazing Spider-Man Classics, was getting into the drama of the subplots and the characters and all the nuances of their interactions. We had a lot of fun with that. That's not really the flavor of this show, so I sort of left a lot of that on the side. But it's it's a show that I miss. It's one of the things I'm most proud of that I ever produced. Well, I'm sure I'm not the only one who would appreciate it if those episodes get released. <laughs> I believe Stephen Lacey has commented on it a couple of times in Fantastic Cast, because I believe he was a guest on this episode. He was. And he was a trooper, because we had some technical issues with this particular uh, episode that um, caused some re-recordings to be necessary. But yeah. He's a good friend, a good podcaster, and Fantastic Cast is a great show. So, yes. And he, it's also, 
at the time of this recording, 3 a.m. in his time zone, which is why he didn't join us. I was inviting him in to surprise you to discuss oh, this you? issue. Wow, that would have been awesome. Okay, love you, Stephen. I-, I wish you had been here now. Wow, that would have been neat. Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't work out. So, But yeah, if you can, dig those up. And if you feel like editing and releasing them, you'll have people listening. I keep telling myself that I'm going to revive the show in another format with, with one or two other people that I have in mind who said they would do it. I just, and then I would, I would do the episodes, you know, the lost episodes and I just haven't done that. We haven't gone there. Okay. So that's where we're at. Did you have any closing thoughts on this issue? I've reiterated my closing thoughts a few times now. Yeah. So I'm just going to say, love this era of Spidey. Yeah. It's a good one. Now, speaking of Stephen Lacey, those of you who are reading along at home will hear him when he joins us next week. For Ultimates Volume 1, Issues 1 to 13, this is the first time we are consciously deviating from the printed list. The printed list has Ultimates Issue Number 1 on it. If you've read Issue 1 in isolation, you'll understand why everyone involved is assuming that the poor intern who was adding with the votes misunderstood and people were were voting for Ultimates Volume 1, Issues 1 to 13. So we will be discussing the 13-issue run, not just the first issue in isolation. That has been reprinted in two trade paperbacks, one hardcover, and it's also available on both Comixology and Marvel Digital Unlimited. So you could find this in all of Bureau 42 shows on iTunes and Stitcher, as well as the Bureau42.com RSS feeds. If you listen to it through any podcast feed that allows ratings, please give an honest rating to the show. It's, you know, it does help all the shows you listen to get noticed and build their audience, which is what we're all hoping for to build that discussion. You're also welcome to join the Facebook forum to discuss any of the stories that we have there. And thank you for listening. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man. The Incredible Hulk. The Mighty Thor. The Captain America. Wow. Being dramatic there, aren't we? Do, do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You, you're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, mm-hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. Sounds like the Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So, um... Maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. 
Um, Dad, don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh, yeah, Avengers Inspirations Podcast. Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you.